Hello and welcome to episode number 254 of Smart Podcast Trashy Books. I'm Sarah Wendell from Smart Bitches Trashy Books, and this here is a podcast about romance fiction and the women who read and write it, plus all the other things we're interested in, because we're interested in lots of things, because, well, y'all are very interesting people. Today we are talking about true crime. Elise and Amanda really like true crime in several formats, from podcasts to books to television programs. Meanwhile, I cannot nope hard enough. So we talk about true crime and all of the things that they enjoy, specifically what programs they like and what they get out of listening and watching. They make a lot of recommendations, and I apologize in advance. Plus, they talk about the ways in which reframing the stories of crimes against women to refocus on the women's lives, not just their deaths, has a lot of parallels to this other genre, um, the one we really like. I can't think of it right now, but there's a lot of similarities. We also talk about some studies examining the popularity of true crime and how that popularity may be changing the ways in which people perceive fear, personal safety, and getting involved. In other words, to quote another very famous podcast, fuck politeness. Now, obviously, if we're talking about true crime, if you are sensitive to stories of murder, crime, assault, kidnapping, sexual abuse, every bad thing ever, you might want to skip this episode. I'm very sorry. We are talking a lot about true crime specifically in terms of individual stories and also about the genre that examines crime because so much of this is about crimes against women. And if you are thinking, oh my gosh, I cannot wait to listen and I want to hear all the recommendations, there are so many. They come very quickly. There are lots and lots of recommendations and I will link to everything in the podcast entry at smartbitchestrashybooks.com slash podcast. Now, I have a very interesting sponsor for this episode. So listen up. This episode is sponsored by Jules and James, a fiction podcast that tells the story of two strangers who fall in love with the unknown. Have you ever met a stranger and felt like you had a special connection to them like you'd known them from before? That's the inspiration behind Jules and James, a new romance fiction podcast made up of a series of conversations between two young artists, Jules and James. They start talking to each other through a misdialed phone number and decide to keep chatting indefinitely, but under certain conditions. During weekly calls, Jules and James talk about their lives in London and Paris, their dreams for the future, the world around them, and everything else that the comfort of speaking to a stranger allows you to reveal. And who knows? Maybe their phone conversations might turn into something more. Eavesdrop on their conversation by subscribing and downloading the episodes on iTunes, Google Play, Radio Public, and other outlets. Check out meetjulesandjames.com to find out more. And during the outro, I have a sample if you would like to hear a preview. So stay tuned after the podcast to hear a little sneak preview of what this podcast sounds like. It's pretty cool. So thank you to Jules and James and the team behind this fiction podcast for sponsoring this episode. And for this episode, I have some compliments, which is so much fun. So first, to Lisa B. If you were a country and you had your own flag, the design would be so incredible, four different Project Runway episodes would be dedicated to it. And to Liz H., there is one word in just about every language that is nearly untranslatable, but scholars are pretty sure it refers to your being terrific. And if you are wondering what this is, please have a look at patreon.com slash smart bitches. If you would like to support the show with a monthly pledge, starting with as little as a one whole dollar a month, you can help me reach goals like having transcripts for all of the episodes in the archives that don't have one. And we are so close to that last goal. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited. 
And on Sunday, July 2nd, I have a post going up about the podcast, but I will give you a sneak preview. We have crossed over 1 million total downloads for this show. I am in awe. Wow. Thank you for that. If you have listened from the beginning or just found us, if you have told a friend or subscribed or left a review or had a look at the Patreon page or you just hang out with us every Friday afternoon or evening or whenever you listen, thank you. That is so cool. I also have some news. I have news. Lots of news. I have lots of things to tell you. If you are in Orlando, Florida, or you will be on Saturday, July 29th, you should know that Romance Writers of America will be hosting their annual Readers for Life Literacy Autographing. Hundreds of romance authors in one place, and all of the proceeds of the book sales go to literacy organizations. Now, why am I telling you this? Some of your favorite authors are likely to be there, including Sylvia Day, Tessa Dare, Courtney Milan, Julie James, Beverly Jenkins, and Jill Shalvis. And for the first time ever, I will also be signing at RWA's Literacy Autographing. Yay, I'm so excited! Oh my gosh! So I will be signing. The signing is at the Walt Disney World Dolphin Resort in Pacific Hall, Saturday, July 29th, 2017, from 3 to 5 p.m. Now, if you come and find me, and I'm in the W's because my last name is Wendell, and over in the W's, we have all the AC. It's nice and cool, usually very open, or at least we're at the end of the room. So it's pretty awesome to hang out there for a bit. If you come find me and you mention the podcast, I have a special sticker for you if you would like one. And if you would like more details and see the complete list of authors who have signed on to sign, signed on to sign, who are signing, yeah, that. If you would like to see the whole list and get all the details, go to rwa.org forward slash literacy. That's rwa.org slash literacy. And I hope if you can make it, you I will see you there. It would be super cool to meet you. The music you are listening to is provided by Sassy Outwater. I will have information at the end of the podcast as to who this is. And if you would like to check out these episodes on iTunes, we have our own iTunes page at iTunes.com slash DBSA. Recent episodes, books in the iBook store, all the things you need if you are an iType user, iUser, iOS, i you are super into Apple things, this is where you should go. As I mentioned in the intro, the earlier part of the intro, because this is still the intro, we talk about a lot of different television shows, podcasts, and articles. I did a lot of research for this podcast because, like I said, true crime is not my thing, and I'm trying to figure out why it is the thing for so many other people. So I did a lot of research, and I have links to some scholarly articles that I found, as well as press coverage about the resurgence of true crime with podcasts and other programs. So please go to podcast entries at smartbitchestrashybooks.com slash podcast. You'll find all of the links. And now, on with the podcast. So we're going to talk true crime. Yay. I've been I've been looking forward to doing this podcast for like weeks and I've been doing research, which is weird because I don't like true crime. Like so I you, can't enjoy it. And yet I've been researching it. So you've automatically put in like 99 more percent effort than me. Well, no, because you actually enjoy it. So you and this is something that you um, this is something that you actively seek out. You like true crimes. So yeah, like our, our homework is technically part of our routine. Since we- right, exactly. Whereas I am like, this is the strangest thing. I don't, I don't understand. And it's weird because I've been leaving notes for myself. Like, Sarah, you don't like it, but don't sound judgmental when you ask why they like it. <laughs> well, I think it's important to specify that I like certain types of true crime, not yes. all true crime. And yes. Just like I like certain types of thrillers and romantic suspense, but not all of it. Because 
I think you and I were talking that thrillers and romantic suspense and true crime can fall into the category where it's just another way of commodifying women's bodies, right? So the whole story yes. is built upon uh, usually the the death or abduction of a woman or a child and how you treat that is really significant in terms of whether or not I'm going to consume it. Yes. And the true crime that you guys are gravitating towards sounds like from what I've been reading in my research that A, is is created by women and is largely consumed by women, which changes the gaze overall of how the stories are framed. Right. It's, I think, you know, with the rise of all of the girl titles in thrillers, Gone Girl, you know, the, the girl on the train. Right. You're starting to get this from the female gaze. And that's really significant. So what specific true crime uh, stories do you guys like? What do you enjoy inside the idea of the, the sort of the genre of true crime? What are you guys enjoying? Oh, man. Um, I'm all across the board, I guess. Serial killers are always interesting. Cults, I think, are interesting, too. That's sort of um, how so many people can be led to believe this one unifying thing, even if it's harmful to their families, to themselves, to their lifestyles. I don't think there's anything that I've read or listened to where I'm like, no, this isn't for me, or no, I can't deal with this. Um, I know... Elise and I discussed The Keepers briefly, which is a new Netflix um, docu-series, and it's so good. Um, but trigger warning, it does deal with a lot of sexual abuse. Um, and it is hard to listen to, and it is hard to watch these interviews with these victims. But so far, there hasn't been anything that I've listened to that I've personally had to turn off. So... I'm pretty much fair game for everything, I guess. And it's funny because I think things like The Keepers and My Favorite Murder are all housed in a genre that is titled Not for Sarah. <laughs> and it's not because I'm particularly uh, triggered by them. It's that, well, no, actually it is because I listen to that and then I cannot get over the anxiety that I hear hearing this story. Like I get so mad and I get so anxious and I got nowhere to put that. So I, I just cannot engage in it. But at the same time, I am so admiring that it exists because sexual abuse is not something you were, quote unquote, supposed to talk about. And that's why it flourishes. Like even teaching my children the proper names for their body parts was a somewhat scandalous decision in my preschool. But if you don't do that, then it's very hard for kids to articulate if something's happening to them and someone has touched them, they don't have a language to say what's happening, you know? So I'm really glad that this is all being talked about. I just can't go near it. <laughs> Elise, what were you going to say? The thing that's really interesting about The Keepers is for people who haven't seen the previews, it is about um, two women who are right now working to solve the, the cold case murder of a nun who died in the 1960s. And these women are awesome. They're like in their 60s, I think. And one's the researcher and the other one's kind of like the beat cop who will like knock on doors and cold call people. So this nun was an English teacher in a all-girls Catholic school in Baltimore. And she one day, um, she was a, lived in an apartment with another nun. 
And one day she said, you know, I'm going to run some errands, but she never came home. And they searched for her and couldn't find her. And eventually her body was found. And so it starts off as, okay, there's this mystery, but then you find out that there was a huge problem with priests at this all-girls high school sexually assaulting the girls. And what shortly before uh, this woman, Sister Catherine, was murdered, some of the girls had told her what was happening, and she had promised to do something about it. And so there's a lot of evidence that suggests that the reason that she was killed was because she was going to expose what was happening at this school. And it is hard to listen to. There's there's one woman who very graphically describes what happened to her. And at certain points, it was like, I don't want to listen to this, but I also respect that she has the right to tell the story of her abuse however she wants to tell it. And I think the fact that she was saying these are – the specific things that happened to me while making direct eye contact with the camera and saying, I know this makes you uncomfortable and I don't give a shit because I, I need to tell this story. That's significant. And I also think brave and brave. And, and she did talk about what you said, Sarah, where she said, you know, people now will say to me, you know, at 16, 17, how did you not know that this was abuse? How did you not know that this was wrong? And she's like, I was the sheltered, you know, Catholic girl who she said, like, I didn't even know what semen was. How was I supposed to know? You you know what I mean? Like, none of this made sense to me because no one had ever talked about it. And because no one in my family would talk about it, I'm certainly not going to go to them and say, hey, this thing is happening that I don't think is right. And to make matters worse, these priests kind of sought out um, girls who had a dysfunctional home life or had yep. histories of abuse Um, so these things were sort of the norm for these women and they had no outlet to talk about them. So they would come to their priests as, you know, to give confession about these feelings that they were struggling with. And then in turn, those priests would exploit those confessions for their own horrible, horrible actions. I generally think that cultures where chastity and ignorance are so heavily emphasized are the most obvious places where abuse like that flourishes. And it's, it's infuriating. Like, this is the part where I get mad, and I don't have anywhere to put it. <laughs> you know, I this is part of why I can't, I, I feel like this is a shortcoming on my part, to be clear that I can't, <clears throat> that I can't be like, okay, here's what I'm going to do. How, what does the show do to help process viewer reactions? I mean, I know that the, because uh, I'm, I'm in Maryland, and this is rather large news, um, just a bit. I know that the uh, Baltimore Police Department it has set up like an anonymous submission page. Like if you have, if you were abused at this school, you can, you know, please tell us, you give us all the details. Uh, but that was how many years ago? Uh, it was uh, in the 60s. Yeah, yeah, that was a long ass time ago. In the 60s. So but, what, and, is and, the, what is the way that they sort of channel viewer reaction? Is there any kind of, I mean, I hate to sound... Like I'm talking about search engine optimization, but is there like a call to action involved? I just want to say really quick that the because I think it's important to say her name. The nun who was murdered was Sister Kathy Sesnick. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. I think when you listen to a lot of true crime podcasts or you watch the TV show, they do a pretty good job of alternating like the heavier episodes where you're dealing with things like sexual abuse of a child, and then episodes that are a little bit more procedural. Mm-hmm. You know, so that you're not getting constantly hit with 
what's happening. Um, so they had this woman uh, talking about um, she was listed as Jane Doe um, for a long time. And they had her discussing what had happened to her at the school, but then they would alternate that with the two women present day who are doing the active investigation and how they're investigating and the steps they've taken um, to get justice for Kathy Sesnick. And so it, it kind of spaces it out. So I think it's not super overwhelming all at the same time. And I think seeing those two women who were Sister Kathy's students, who are like, you know, this woman touched our lives. She was our favorite teacher. She was so sweet and so nice. And even though her murder is 50 years in the past almost, we're not going to let this go. We're not going to forget it. And I think the passion that these two women have to try to find justice for a woman who touched their lives um, I don't know, I think is really powerful and it's really kind of, I don't know, positive in a way to see that they're not going to let this go no matter how much time has passed. And I think it's significant that they're saying that Kathy Sesnick's story isn't the story of a woman who was murdered. It's not the story of this body that was found in a field. Her story is the story of a teacher who touched a lot of lives and who very may well have stood up for students who were being sexually assaulted. And that was what resulted in her death. And that's the story we're going to tell, not the sensationalist. She went missing and we found her, you know, in a ditch so many weeks later. Which is what I was talking about earlier which is what I was saying when I was talking about reframing the story, it, it shifts the gaze and it focuses on the victim as a person, as opposed to, as you said, as you said, the victim as like a, a body, a dead thing that was no longer alive. And the idea that uh, a person's murder that's unsolved 50 years later matters is really interesting. I am, I don't have an opinion. I'm just sort of fascinated by the idea that cold cases are being revived in all of these different forms of new broadcast. You know what I mean? I think that for me, if I'm going to be consuming true crime, um, it has to do one of two things. It either has to tell the victim's story in a way that's about the victim and their life, their their lives, and kind of how um, it, it has to make them a person, right? Like we said, not a body. Or the other thing it has to do is it has to provide a larger context for how this particular crime changed how we think about crimes and how we treat them. So one of the podcasts that I'm listening to right now is called In the Dark, and it's about the um, Jacob Wetterling case. Oh, gosh. Right. So for those of you who don't know, this was like a huge thing in the 80s. I'm trying to remember what year it was exactly. Jacob Wetterling was a little boy who was 11 years old, and he and his friends lived in a small Minnesota town. And they went for uh, a bike ride down to like a... It was like a store I, or something? Yeah, they were going to rent a movie. And it's actually kind of like a super, I shouldn't say this, like it's, they talk about this in the podcast, like it's the most 80s thing that can happen where they were trying to get the 16-year-old girl who lived next door to go with them and like pretend to be their mom on the phone so they could rent an R-rated movie. 
so anyway, they go, they rent the movie, and they're riding back, and a man kind of appears out of this cornfield and abducts Jacob and tells the other boys to run and not to turn around or he'll shoot them. And so for years and years and years, this case was unsolved. And this was kind of like a turning point in the 80s for, you know, they say we lost our innocence or um, because it was so televised and, and so sensationalized, it really scared a lot of people that this um, stranger abduction could happen, even though it's extremely rare. To put and, this in context, this was in 1989. Right. So I was about 14. This, for my uh, my memory as a child, is like what Jean Benet was 10 or 15 years later. It was huge news, and it was everywhere. This kind of happened around the same time, like, Adam Walsh was kidnapped. Mm-hmm. Um, his dad was the guy that started... Um, America's Most Wanted. Yeah. And but the the podcast is really, really interesting because it talks about the fact that um we, we now know who killed Jacob and his body's been recovered. And it was this guy that lived like one town over, like twenty miles away. Also it's interesting that when this podcast started, that news hadn't been broken. Right. I believe. And they totally reframed the podcast. Um but This the is thing- my favorite murder? No, this is called In the Dark. Oh, okay. And it's, they just focus, it's like a eight-part podcast that just focuses on the Jacob Wetterling case. But what's really interesting that they talk about was that because this was so publicized and so sensationalized, that in a lot of ways they lost sight of kind of how to manage um, the investigation. And one of the things they they talk about, a, a person who works for the FBI right now, the the guy who killed Jacob Wetterling was well-known by police in that area as a guy who had, like, a suspicious interest in children. And they never had anything to prove he was a child molester. But several other boys that were Jacob's age in the town surrounding um, where he was abducted from had been molested by this guy. One kid had actually been kidnapped and gotten away. And they said that the the FBI agent said something really interesting, which is no one ever talked to kids in the area. And if you want to find out who's a threat to kids in your neighborhood, you talk to kids because they know. They know this person shouldn't be here. This person stands out. Why is he always coming to the park, but he doesn't have kids? So if the police had actually listened to other people who were Jacob's age, who were maybe – afraid and ashamed to come forward, they would have found out um, what had happened. And actually, it was some of these victims who were later adults that kind of found each other and were processing through the fact that they had been sexually abused as boys, um, who helped push forward the investigation that got the confession that led to um, finding Jacob's remains. I think for me... I'm just fascinated um, in terms of what people are capable of in terms of um, both on the negative side, the people per- perpetuating these crimes. Is that the right word? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and committing. Committing. Yeah. Um, and some of these are, are horrible. Um, and also the survivors. I know on an episode of my favorite murder um I can't remember her name. I think her name was Mary. Um, Mary Vincent? Yes, Mary Vincent. Her survivor story 
when I heard, um, I think Karen was the one on My Favorite Murder who told it, um, her survivor story, like, shook me to my core in the sense of, I can't imagine ever being in that position where she was in, like, kidnapped, um, you know, she's trying to get away, and this guy essentially severs her arm and leaves her for dead on the side of the road. Like, I just can't imagine being in that place and having the the will to, like, crawl up this ravine back to the shoulder of the road to flag a driver down. Um, it just amazes me um, both what people are capable of in a negative sense and in a positive sense. And I know a lot of people... I think Redheaded Girl tried to listen to some podcasts and it and it wasn't for her um, because uh, I think the whole armchair detective aspect is a turnoff uh, to her. Um, and I can understand why. And that's not why I listen to these podcasts. I know some people do to help solve cold cases. Um, I know there's an entire web community dedicated to solving cold cases and missing persons. I think it's called Web Sleuths. Um, But I know for me, and probably for Elise, that isn't the the draw to these true crime stories. Do you know why you're drawn to them? Do you know the, the source of your fascination? No, I have no idea. Um, like where- You are definitely not alone. It is not a fascination I have, but there's a whole lot of people that do. I don't know. But I just want to make it clear. I just want to make it clear again. I am totally not judging you for this. I don't understand it, and, I, and my response is completely different. But I don't – I'm not judging you for loving this. I'm trying to figure out what it is that you love – that I don't share. I um I can't like pinpoint a moment where I'm like this is really interesting, but I think my first um brush that I can remember in terms of true crime or these sort of, you know, horrible horrific stories um was the the Columbine shooting. So it was in 1999 and I was uh 10 when it happened. And I remember coming home from school and my mom had the news coverage on. And I just remember sitting on the couch and, you know, trying to process this as a 10-year-old, what was happening. Um, So I think that's like the first moment where I can pinpoint um, having some kind of memory related to, to crime and just being so drawn in by it. It... I'd hate to use the analogy, but sometimes when this happens, it's kind of like a, you know, if you're driving on the highway and there's an accident and everyone's slowing down because they want to know what's going on. They want to know what's happening. So it's I, it's like one of those things where I can't look away or I can't turn it off. And, you know, I want to know every single detail. Um, but my mom had an interest in true crime. Um, she really likes those old Hollywood stories like the Black Dahlia and and that sort of thing. I think my interest is a little bit more um, darker than hers, um, whereas hers focuses more on, like, Hollywood and crime, which is also a really good podcast, I think it's called, is Hollywood and Crime, that focuses on yep. um, cases relevant to, like, old Hollywood. Yeah, I think, like, the Black Dahlia was one that they talked about, um... They, there were a whole bunch of murders at the same time, and the podcast kind of explores whether or not one person did that or 
it was multiple murders over a, uh, a span of time that were other related. Um, but yeah, they do like kind of reenactments a little bit too, which is, I think is kind of fun. Like, you know, they have actors who do the cop voices and who do the um, reporter voices. It's definitely and, more like a radio drama. And yeah. Which uh, one is this? It's called Hollywood and Crime. I think for me, I I totally get what Amanda's saying because there is there's absolutely like a titillation aspect of true crime. There's no way around that, and I think it's how how is it being framed up though? Is it exploitative or isn't it? Because there's part of you that wants answers. Like um, I love stories about people who have vanished or disappeared because like I want to know what happened to them. How did how did they just disappear? How do you just vanish? How does somebody you know? go for a drive and never come back. Um, Which is so, funny because I'm the opposite. I find like cold cases and vanishing stories so frustrating because I don't know what happened. I don't know the outcome. And I'm one of those people too that I think if you say, you know, well, that's upsetting. Don't think about it. Then I'm guaranteed to think about it obsessively until it drives me nuts. So in some respects, listening to true crime is kind of like identifying the thing that scares me a little bit. And saying, mm-hmm. okay, I want to know these stories because I, in some respects, I want to feel prepared. Yes, I was in my uh, research for this um, for this episode. Seriously, this is so indulgent of me. Like, <laughs> I am sitting here interviewing you because I want to figure out what the fuck is wrong with me that this is there's not my thing. Wrong. And there's probably there's nothing wrong with you. There's probably nothing wrong with me. Like, I'm probably quite normal, but or you know, as normal as I can get to, but. Um, <laughs> There was an article in The Atlantic that sort of asks uh, the same question, but says that um, one of the things that is visible in the community around my favorite murder is not only is it true crime, but it's also a lot of discussions about mental health. Like if you are scared of these things and you can't control your thoughts, um, you can get help. There's help for that. You can get help and you can get therapy and you can get psychological support, which again is another thing that has stigma and you're not supposed to talk about. But one of the points that was in this article is uh, from Krista Lawless, who's a mental health counselor in Oregon, says in the article that one of the things that people do is that they have to walk up to the things that they are really scared to talk about and start processing them out loud and accepting that they are real. Now I'm having no problem admitting they're real. I just don't want to manage the um, part where my brain's like, Oh, okay. So here's what would happen if that happened to you. Nope, 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 no brain. Bad idea. Bad idea. Brain. We don't want to do that. (laughs) And then another person, Amanda Vicari, who's a psychologist um, who did a study called social psychological and personal science or an article in that magazine said, this is so interesting to me. There may be an evolutionary reason for women's obsession with true crime. Quote, we've adapted to pay attention to anything that can help us increase our survival. So it could be the fact that we're just in tune and interested in these things that are dangerous to us because understanding and knowing about them can increase our chances that it's not going to happen to us. I fully support that 100%. I think in My Favorite Murder, they bring up that a lot of the crimes they talk about happen to women women are the victims um and i know like one of the slogans or one of the um kind of sound bites that has come out of my favorite murder is fuck politeness yeah Um, stay sexy don't get murdered yeah because 
especially, I guess I'll use Ted Bundy as an example. Ted Bundy, mm-hmm. the infamous serial killer of Good women. Um, a lot of the reason why um, these women became victims is because Ted Bundy had like a cast and he would portray himself as kind of like this bumbling idiot who needed help, you know, carrying things to his car. So, you know, these women saw him. They're like, oh, you know, he he has a broken arm. He needs help. He seems really nice. I'll just help. He's this. not a threat to me. Yeah, I'll just help this stranger to his car. Um, so that's kind we're of... We're supposed to be nice. Yeah. And so these women, I mean, I'm assuming they could have had this gut feeling, but they wanted to appear nice. And so there's this message of listen to your gut. Who cares if you're not nice to this stranger? Like, it would... It doesn't matter if you make it home safely, you're not going to, it's not going to bother you that you were rude and refused to help a stranger a week from now. You know what I mean? There's actually a name for the idea that women are particularly interested in things that increase their chance of survival. Um, There are several studies that show that women fear crime more than men, even though men are more likely to be murdered. There's a name for that thing. It's called gender fear paradox. Hmm. Men are more statistically more likely to be victims of crime, but women, of course, are more likely to be the victim of disturbing crimes that have a, a sort of obsessive or, or um, very specific target intent like rape, serial killings, profile killings. Um, that the, the idea that the, the crimes that women are victims of are crimes of some form of obsession and directed attack that are based on things that you don't have any control of them, like your gender or the color of your hair or the way someone is obsessed with you. Um, and that is all tied up in in politeness too, because we're taught that we should, we should attract gays, that we should attract men, or if that's, or, you know, if, if that's how you roll, we are, we're taught that we should want that attention and we should cultivate that attention. I think women are conditioned to be, we want to be appealing to a large audience and at the same time completely inoffensive, right? So, but then when something happens to a woman, you get the bullshit of, well, she shouldn't have been dressed like that. Why was she Mm -hmm. in that neighborhood? And one of the things that my favorite murder does a lot of is they push back really hard on that and on victim shaming. It, it doesn't fucking matter what she was wearing. She didn't deserve to be murdered. It doesn't, it doesn't fucking matter. matter. She went down an alley. She didn't deserve to be murdered. And um, they had a guy on the show. He's a comedian and his name is Guy Branham. And he's, if you've ever seen him, he's also a lawyer or he was, a lawyer. he was a lawyer. Yeah. He's this really large uh, uh, man and he's also gay and he has kind of like, for his size, he has kind of like a very high-pitched voice, mm-hmm. and he has what he refers to as gay voice. And he said that he now notices when he's like walking out of a club at night or a restaurant and there's a woman in front of him, he can tell that she's a little bit scared because he's so physically intimidating. And he said he will pick up his phone and pretend to make a phone call because once they hear the quote-unquote gay voice, they're not scared anymore. Mm-hmm. And so he's aware of how women around him perceive this threat. And it's interesting that the community around My Favorite Murder in particular not only focuses on on humor and sort of laughing at parts of the story to take away some of the fear, but that it's 
women gathering around this thing that they're obsessed with, that they're that they're obsessed with, that they're told that they should feel bad bad about enjoying. Something is like that, and I can't think of what it is. There's another genre that has that same problem. <laughs> I have no idea what you're talking I, about. I, I'm going to have to edit in later what the hell it was because I'm <laughs> okay. not sure. But anyway, if you, if you figure it out, you can let me know. So there's there's the idea that women's fear and women's survival and then women's arousal and women's emotions are shameful and you shouldn't indulge in learning more about them and you shouldn't you shouldn't enjoy them and you shouldn't uh, seek out stories about them so it's it's like the the cousin of the crap that that other genre gets instead of you know oh your emotions and your sexuality and your arousal that's dumb it's your fears of being a victim are dumb no actually kind of rooted in reality well, and I think it's interesting because a lot of romance readers are also famous. Oh, is that it? Is that the show? Oh, God, thank you. I'm going to have to edit my notes. Anyway, go ahead. A lot of romance readers are fans of true crime and psychological yes. thrillers because you're going after the same thing, which is I'm exploring these feelings that I have or these interests that I have that I am told I shouldn't have, that I should be ashamed of. And In the privacy both, of your imagination. Right. And they're both really powerful. I mean, when I look at how being a romance reader has impacted my life. I mean, I think that in a lot of ways, it's certainly made me more um, more comfortable and cognizant of my own sexuality and talking about it and also saying things like, I'm going to set these boundaries for myself relationship-wise, and that's totally cool because I have the right to a mutually respectful, fulfilling relationship. And when I look at how I, I've taken some of true crime and factored it into my life, it's made me more aware of my surroundings and it's made me more aware of these are things that happen, but I don't have to be a victim, right? I mean, even Memorial Day, I went to the office and I was alone and our front door wasn't locking. And I wound up calling IT who's in charge of like the automated locks. And the guy's first comment was, oh, yeah, I guess we have a lot of stuff that could get stolen. And my comment <laughs> oh, to him yeah, was – Oh, yeah, the computers were first on your mind. Right. And my comment to him was, or you have a woman working alone in this building uh, when no one's here. And he goes, oh. It's like it's so weird that this, there's such a disconnect between um, genders because – so I went to the live show and it was amazing. And I brought Eric, my boyfriend. He was not into it. He's like, that's not for me afterwards. <laughs> but um, uh, he doesn't do true crime. But we were planning a vacation to Austin and it was wonderful. And Eric's a runner. And he's like, I think I'm going to reach out on Craigslist to see if a local can take me down some, you know, local running trails. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm like what the fuck are you talking about? He's like, what? And I got like mad at him. I was like, you don't do that. Like, what? Why not? Like, people do it all the time. I was like, how do you think I would feel? Like, like if I was a woman, would you feel comfortable with me? Hooking, like, finding a stranger to take me on running trails in a place I've never been. He's like, yeah, I guess. I was like, no. Guys don't, guys don't understand. They are not conditioned to fear for their safety. Yeah. Like, how many times as a woman we have to think about our own safety in spaces that we're both comfortable in, like my own street, or places we've never been. Like, I would never in a million years go running with a stranger in an unfamiliar place. But he thought it run. was normal. 
I used to run outside when I lived in New Jersey and I would run in the in, on the side of the busiest streets and I dressed ridiculously because people didn't always look where they were going. I would run with some weird colors and combinations, but I ran in the street and I would wave to every car like, hey, how you doing? Because I if wanted something to know happened, that they saw me. Someone right? would be like, and then I would have people who would swerve at me and make me get up on the sidewalk. And then I would be like, what the fuck is your problem, asshole? But you know what is so fascinating? What just hit me? Women are conditioned to both fear and need men in this sort of patriarchy terror campaign. You should be afraid that some guy is going to make you a victim and that's why you need me. This other guy. I'm the nice guy. I'm going to take care of you. So we are conditioned to both fear men because we need men to protect us. And if we go out alone, then we deserve what we get because other men are going to hurt us and we should need a man to protect us. Well, when How I, completely fucked up is that? When I moved to Massachusetts, uh, actually, no, when I started college in Florida, my parents gifted me with um, a pepper spray keychain. Uh, <laughs> have a good time, dear. Yeah, Don't get uh, dead. And in Florida, I think it's fine to have, but in Massachusetts, you need a permit to have pepper spray. Holy what? shit. Really? Yeah, yeah. Oh, my uh, gosh. One of the things on My Favorite Murder was pepper spray first, ask questions later. Because... <laughs> If I'm in a situation where I need to use pepper spray, I really don't care that I might get fined for having it. Like, this is my personal safety. And if the cops are going to, like, go after me for protecting myself with pepper spray, then, you know, whatever. I'll take it. I'll deal with it. I mean, even stuff like whenever I come home, uh, especially at night, when I get out of my car, I have my house key in my hand. And, like, I am ready to – I'm going to go straight to the house, put the key in, come inside, lock the door. And the number of times Rich and I have come home together at night, and he's, like, fucking around on the front porch, looking for his key, looking for the right key. And I'm like, a woman would never – Dropping his keys on the ground. (laughs) Right. A woman would never do that. No. You're ready to get in the house the second you get there. Yeah. And and then you lock Um, the fucking door. Oh, yeah. You lock the – oh, yeah. So what do you get out of – I mean, are you both is your is your favorite of this particular new genre or new evolution of true crime is your favorite my favorite murder or is there something else that you're like, oh, no, 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 this is my thing because I tried to listen to my favorite murder and I couldn't I couldn't get past the comedy part yeah. because I start identifying with the victim. I'm like, OK, that's someone's someone loved that person. Someone cared about that person and there's, that person uh, was devastated and I can't get to the comedy part. for me. My favorite murder is really great for kind of like the the feminist aspect. I like that it's by women and for women. I like the discussions on mental health and their latest episode. They talked about how the two of them went to their first therapy session together to kind of address um, their communication styles and how they work together, which I thought was really cool. Um, But I also like um, the generation Y podcast, W H Y. Um, the hosts are two men. It's not a comedy podcast. Um, there's a lot of research. It's uh, mainly storytelling, um, but it, there's no comedy involved whatsoever. Um, so it's a pretty good, straightforward podcast. They have really soothing voices. I know this is going to sound really twisted and awful, and I think I've told Sarah this, um, but I like to listen to things while I go to sleep, whether it's white noise or a podcast. So my go-to white noise to put on is their episode on the Scott Peterson case. Holy shit. Yes, you did tell me this. (laughs) I've listened to it probably close to 100 times, so I don't really need to pay attention because I know the story. And 
it puts me to sleep in a good 30 to 40 minutes. I'm out. I'm out like a light. The cool thing about Generation Y, though, is that they really don't get into details. Like, they don't get into the violent details or if there's sexual assault. They just say there was sexual assault. It's not – they're they're not hyping up that. Like, they're being fairly vague about it. Um, I think for the humor with My Favorite Murder, some of it is like you have to laugh so that you don't cry, if that makes sense. Is My Favorite Murder your favorite, Elise? I don't know that it's my favorite because I drive, I have like a little over an hour commute every day. So I listen to a lot of different podcasts. So I listen to my favorite murder. We talked about Hollywood and crime, which I really liked. And then there's a couple others. um, I talked about in the dark. Have you listened to someone knows something? Yes. uh, I thought the, so someone knows something it's on season two and each season is a different case. I thought the first one was anticlimactic. Um, it's about this little boy who went missing, I think, in Canada. Yeah, or they're all Canadian. Canada. Yeah, and there was this like, one part where they brought out, like, these sniffer dogs, and they were, like, hitting on stuff, even though this case is, like, 30 years old. But it was I just found it anticlimactic. But I am enjoying the second uh, season where a woman was proposed to on, like, New Year's Eve, and then she goes, like, missing, a, like, a day later. There's another one that's Canadian, too, from the Canadian Broadcasting Company called Missing and Murdered. Oh, yeah, I listened to that one, too. I think the thing that's really interesting about that is it focuses on the fact that um, in Canada, and I would imagine everywhere else, the rate of uh, abduction and murder among indigenous women or women of color is much higher than it is with white women, and it doesn't get anywhere near the same amount of press coverage. And I liked that the host or the investigator of that um, podcast is also an indigenous woman. So I thought that was an, it brought like a deeper understanding um, to the podcast. I thought that was really good. And then there's another one that I like called Unsolved Murders, True Crimes. It's a ParCast podcast. So the murders, like you can tell from the title, are unsolved. Um, But it's, it's acted out. It's like a radio drama. Each murder is a two-part episode, and then they do kind of like a – they intersperse the facts of the case with um, a dramatization. Some other recs. I'm going through my um, podcast list right now. Criminal. The episodes are short, I believe, like maybe a half an hour. Um, and the host kind of just touches on really quickly like a crime case. Um One episode that I thought was really interesting was this young woman who, I can't remember if she goes to buy a car or a house, but her credit is just obliterated. And it turns out that her mom had been opening up all these cards and stuff in her name, and her mom has since passed, so she's trying to reconcile with the fact that her mom did all this stuff to her credit and trying to fix it, and not having any answers, and her dad was just as clueless. Um, but that has, like, good shorts, I guess. There's not an ongoing case that they're working on. Um, if you're into, like, organized crime and corruption, Crime Town is really good. The first season, I think, deals with, like, political corruption in Providence, Rhode Island, I think, if I remember correctly. Um... Let's see, Case File has an Australian host. 
Um, and that, yeah. and that's pretty straightforward. Um, in that, uh, it's kind of like Generation Y where they're just telling the story. It's not humorous, but sometimes it can get graphic, right, Elise? Am I remembering that? Yeah, I, they go into a little more detail. Yeah. And then one that I thought was really, really good um, was Stranglers, which oh, is yes. yeah, which is about the Boston Strangler case and how that it might have been possible that there was more than one Boston Strangler committing these crimes at the same time. That one was really fascinating. The host is great. She does great research. Um the interviews that she gets with people are amazing. So I highly recommend that one. People who have what my husband calls bartender pheromone, where you sit down and talk to them and they tell you everything about their lives. Um, those people make amazing interviews happen. And it's really interesting. She finds people that like, you know, had brushes with potentially the Boston Strangler or people working the case. And, the memories that these people have, like, decades later about, like, the the odd details that stick with them are amazing. Yep. Um, I also read true crime books. Not a ton of them. They have to really, uh, really intrigue me. But I have two that I want to recommend, if that's cool. Is it cool that we recommend books on this podcast? I don't know. That might be out of our purview. I guess. I'll, I'll allow it this one time. <laughs> I appreciate that. So there's a book by Beverly Lowry called Who Killed These Girls? And it is yes. about the yogurt shop murders um, that happened in 1991 in Austin. Is it, isn't that like a cold case, right? It's like a it crazy is a cold, cold case. case. So it's about four girls who were working at a, I can't believe it's not yogurt. Or I can't believe it's yogurt. I can't believe it's not yogurt. What is it? We don't know. Um, I can't believe it's yogurt shop in Austin, Texas. And they had been closing up and they had been murdered. And then the the shop had been burned down to try and um, cover up some of the evidence of what had happened. And she does a really good job of kind of describing how it was handled uh, initially and also talking about the girls as people, but then also how this crime really impacted the community because at the time Austin was a very small community. They didn't have a lot of violent crime. And then there's another book I'm reading that um, trigger warnings for discussions of sexual abuse against children, but it's called The Fact of a Body. Yes, I was going to recommend that one too. It's so good. It's a, it's written by a woman who's a lawyer. It's it's half of a memoir and half of um, a true crime book. So when she was in, I can't remember if she had just graduated or she was still in law school. She went to New Orleans to work on. I think it's like a summer uh, internship or like a summer job. Right, to try and get this guy um, off death row and just get him life in prison. And he had um, sexually assaulted and murdered a child. And as she was working on the case, it triggered her own memories of being sexually assaulted as a girl by a family member. And she talks about how that case in particular impacted her and also how it tied into her reconciling and understanding sexual abuse of children. And so it can be a little tough to read, but it's it's really, really good and it's really thoughtful. Um, and it's also a, you know, a very personal memoir that I think – when people come forward and tell those stories that this happened to me, this was a family member. Um, at some point her parents knew about it and they just chose not to discuss it. 
um, to never leave their kids alone with that family member again, but not to deal with it. She talks about how that impacted her. And I think those are powerful stories. Earlier, I think it was last year, there was a great series on A&E called The Killing Season. Um, oh, that is, was so fucking it was, scary. It was really good. It's about the unsolved case of what is being called the Long Island serial killer case, where these bodies were just found on this stretch of beach in Long Island, um, and they haven't been able to solve it. And so these two filmmakers who have done some true crime documentaries in the past kind of investigate it. It's really good, but there's um, also a book called Lost Girls by Robert Kolker. Um, He's a journalist who wrote a story on the fact that – these bodies had been discovered and for whatever reason um the long island police force hasn't really been able to make any breaks in the case well if i remember incorrectly the victims were all sex workers yes and we know that when women are sex workers and they get murdered um, no one really cares right the, the narrative is well they deserved it because they were sex workers as opposed to um nobody deserves to get fucking murdered so it's a it's a really good book. I think it was on like the New York Times 100 notable books. Um, but the case is really recent. I think like in 2010 um, or in the late 2010s. Um, so it's a new case, um, and I'm hoping that it's still being worked on. So maybe we'll see something in the future. I think one of the things that's really significant with the uptick in um, women talking about true crime and the fact that we're looking at it from a more feminist perspective is we are changing the narrative a little bit from somehow the victim deserved this because she was promiscuous or she was in a bad neighborhood or she made bad decisions to looking at um, toxic masculinity as a cause of a lot of these murders. Like, why did you think that you, you know, men who have anger issues and feel like they're entitled to this and then murder this woman because she didn't sleep with him or she cheated on him or whatever. Or like her being a sex worker, you know, maybe they viewed her as less than because she's a sex worker. Yeah, it negates her humanity. Yeah. Right. And, And so we're kind of, it's almost like, I think one of the things that, feels very therapeutic for me is that we're getting angry right Mm -hmm. as a a community of women we're saying fuck this and we're going to talk about it and we're going to talk about it honestly um and we're not going to victim blame and it that anger is is cathartic it feels good and i think that's some of the reason why i don't get bogged down in the the sadness of it I do want to ask you a question and I don't expect you to have the answer, but I'm curious what you think, what your take is on the, on the racial aspect, because so much of who is talking about this, watching it, consuming it, and the profiles are of white women. Um, I can't remember what podcast it was, um, but uh, they, there's like a term for women of color who you know, wind up murdered or go missing and they're called like the invisibles or something like that because, you know, no one really pays them any attention. No one, they don't get like the press coverage that, um, you know, a, a white woman would. I, there's a podcast called Vanished that's all about missing persons. Um, and there was this little five-year-old girl who happened to be 
Black, who her mother went to prison. She was when she was born. Uh, she was given to a family. Um, I think like cousins of the mother, and she had a great life. And then the mom came out of prison um, when her daughter was five and insisted that she get custody back. Now this mother went to prison for child abuse and child neglect, and um. The family was like, we don't really want to give her back to her mother. But the police were like, you know, there's no sort of like transfer of parental rights. You have to give her back. And um, this child winds up going missing. Well, this was also happening around the same time as the Casey Anthony case. So this got no press coverage at all because everyone was so glued to the Casey and Kaylee Anthony, you know, media circus that it was. Um, So it is tragic and it's unfortunate. And to be honest, I don't know what can be done. You know, I'm hoping that by, as Elise said, changing the narrative and, you know, viewing sex workers as people rather than like, oh, they're sex workers. This is like an occupational hazard sort of thing. Um might help with getting certain cases more media attention, especially with these, like, armchair detectives and these podcasts kind of, um, you know, putting a spotlight on these cases. I know that, you know, the I don't know the answer to why the consumption of true crime is predominantly white women. I do think that... um, there is starting to be a little bit more focus on the fact that especially women of color do not get the same media attention that white women do. Like we talked about the the podcast Missing and Murdered from the Canadian Broadcasting Company. They talk about the fact that there are a lot of indigenous Canadian women who are murdered or who disappear that never get any media attention. And so and it's a it's an indigenous Canadian woman who does the podcast too, which I think is very significant. Um, I'm hoping that changes, but that's that's a real issue. I mean, when a little when a little white girl goes missing, it's a big fucking deal. And when a child of color does, it's much much less televised. It's not it's not as significant of an event. And um, I think that talks about just how pervasive racism is in our society. It's definitely, I I was about to say, it's definitely a show of, like, how ingrained um, racism is in the sense that, um, you know, a white child's life is, you know, more valuable than a black child's life. Like, we're going to put more effort in finding one over the other. And I think that there is, I mean, there's a sort of scale of victims. So there's the white woman who is you know married and has kids and for whatever like the mother yeah the mother figure right or the young woman who's going to college who's viewed as being um you know quote unquote a good girl then there's the white woman who's a sex worker or who is sexually promiscuous or maybe had a drug habit or is mentally ill or had some factor that makes her less than and then the scale slides down into women of color and it's it's really sad. It's a it's a sad fact that we live in a society that uses those those factors to decide how much a person's life is worth. 
Are there, aside from the um, the indigenous podcast that you mentioned, are there any that focus exclusively on victims of color that you know of? I have of? not found any that have. No. Yeah, I haven't either. Your best bet right now is to find a podcast and they'll have episodes that focus on victims of color. I think there was one, um, it might have been either Generation Y or True Crime Garage did a one on uh, Mytrice Richardson, her death and disappear, her disappearance and death. But I thought that was a really good episode, and that addresses how you know one she was suffering from an undiagnosed mental illness, but you know the police thought that she was just drunk or on drugs and not really in need of any sort of supervision. Well, I think, and I'm not. Please, please do not misinterpret this as me making excuses because I'm not because it's bullshit. But a lot of these cases, when you you do the podcasts, they rely very heavily on what the police have done, um, the active investigation, what the community has done to help fill out that story. And if we are being honest, when people of color go missing or are murdered, there is less community attention and there may well be less police attention to what happened. And so there are fewer details um, to that story. So, and and I think that's a story in and of itself. So I did some quick Googling, which is by no way a, uh, <laughs> a exhaustive search. And there is a, a website that I like called podcastsincolor.com. Mm-hmm. And that is a uh, directory of podcasts of color. They have like Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Tumblr, and they spotlight different podcasts made by people of color. And there is one one show represented in true crime and it is called true crime asia Hmm. and this person um the host will take you through quote one crime from one country in asia so there's an episode about uh, occult murders there's an episode of um something said in india but i think the last one was in february and i haven't seen any others yeah, I'm looking at it. There's an episode in February, December, and November. Yeah, um, that's it. I mean, I fully empathize. I think it was Linda Holmes at, at NPR who said that the 2017 is going to be peak year of, hey, remember that podcast I started? I didn't realize it was so much work, uh, which is totally true. <laughs> I can attest to that. But I don't easily find podcasts of true crime or any con- consumption of true crime that focuses on w- victims of color especially like the amount of attention lately paid to how many victims of color are also trans and how high that murder rate is. The thing that I think is so interesting about the number of romance fans who are also fans of true crime is that a lot of true crime has no ending. Right. You know, there are a lot of, like you said, Amanda, the the unsolved, the un, the unresolved cases are very frustrating and the missing cases are frustrating because if those people don't, don't, if they're not discovered or found or recovered, then there's no end. There's just a mystery. Do you watch Disappeared, Amanda? No. What is that? Disappeared. <laughs> I love the way like, what? <laughs> I'm sorry. So did you hear about that book with the uh, billionaire and the secret baby and the, <laughs> and the marriage of convenience? No. I want to know about this. The vampires. Yes. Uh, I get the, the same expression of, oh, really? Tell me more. It's, it is so interesting. <laughs> anyway, Disappeared. There are two shows I really like on Investigation Discovery. One is Disappeared, and it is every episode is about a different person who disappeared. And sometimes, after I think it's usually after filming, um, you'll get kind of the blurb at the end where there is some resolution to what happened. And sometimes you don't find out. 
and it drives Rich nuts. Like he, my husband, my husband cannot watch watch what he calls murder shows. Like murder shows are a least time only. Um, usually murder shows involve Dewey, me, knitting, and an adult beverage of some kind because he just can't do it. And Disappeared drives him the most crazy because there's no resolution at the end. So if I'm watching it and he comes to the room, he's like, oh, let me tell you how this ends. We don't fucking know. <laughs> and then he walks out of the room. And also, like, the production quality of Disappeared isn't super amazing, but <laughs> he's doing an impression of the show. Still photo, pan. Still photo, pan. Um, <laughs> See, I can't watch that either. But I, No. The stories really, really fascinate me. Like, there's a story of a woman who, um, she was a mom. She had a, there, there wasn't anything that stood out as being of concern in her life. Like, no debts, no sudden change in behavior that might indicate mental illness, no substance abuse problems. She calls into sick, calls into work sick one day. Middle of the day, leaves a note on the counter for her husband because he's going to be coming home from work, saying, "Hey, I, I went for a walk," and is never seen again. And it's like. What the fuck happened, right? Like, <laughs> I, I, I hope when I die, if there's an afterlife, I know how all of these things ended. Like, I'll get resolution at that point. So I really like Disappeared. And then I also really like the show um, A Crime to Remember. And they're all set like 30s, 40s, 50s, maybe going into the 60s. And they're significant crimes that happened in the past but they reenact them and that production quality is a little bit better like one of the ones that i think was really interesting was the story of kitty genovese oh my god have you seen witness on yes it's so heartbreaking my mother and my grandmother used to live in new york and this was like the story my grandmother would tell me to like scare me as like a teen like be responsible and oh my gosh the legend of kitty genovese is a little bit different from the reality um the 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 uh, the idea that there were 38 witnesses or people who heard was actually propagated by um a newspaper report i know that you are shocked um (laughs) are you suggesting that the media sometimes fucks with true crime uh yeah fake news sarah it's fake i know i know fake news Someone did actually uh, call the police and there were people who heard it, but because they were only seeing parts of it, no one put the whole picture together until the end. But at the same time, I also think that it's it's important to acknowledge that, you know, bystander effect is totally real, that you don't want to get involved in someone's argument. You know what I mean? Oh, like, yeah. You, you don't want to take responsibility for a situation that you don't know anything about. But then there are also situations where I still regret not saying anything or not getting involved. One of the things that I that I find so interesting about my favorite murder is that it, it encourages people to actually get involved yes. and, and, and look out for each other. And I think that, you know, again, by addressing this and by kind of giving women permission to be rude or be loud or do whatever, I mean, they talk about one of the things I can't remember where I read it, but they said if you see a woman, as a woman, if you see a woman who's clearly kind of being harassed or like some guy is just not leaving her alone. You okay, sis? You Yeah, walk over and be like, oh, hey, I'm so glad, you know, we could meet for lunch and like insert yourself into, you know, the conversation like, hey, I am another person who is expecting this person and – She's not alone. Know, she's not alone and now you're going to be uncomfortable. And, you know, I think women – do that for other women. We're kind of more aware of what's happening to 
you know, how many times have you gone up to another woman and said, are you okay? Even mm-hmm. a total stranger, you know, you hear, you see someone in the bathroom who's clearly upset at Target. Are you okay? Do you need help? Mm-hmm. In terms of like television, um, I don't watch a lot of true crime. Like I like documentaries a lot. Netflix has been doing some, some really great stuff there. A lot of the investigation discovery shows, it's hard for me to get into because I hate reenactments so much. And their punny titles of shows just makes me mad. Like, Southern yeah. Fried Homicide and, like, Wives with Knives and, like, jeez, people. Like, I just can't with those. I just can't. Like, but you'd be amazed at, like, how many cases there are with, you know, jilted wives stabbing their husbands. But there are two good shows uh, on ID that I really like. One is Real Detective. They do have reenactments, but they're so well done. And a lot of the time, it's just about actual detectives giving commentary or retelling these cases that they just can't forget that have really impacted them. So I like having that added interview of someone who was actually there and actually worked on the case. Um, That was the other thing I wanted to ask you about very quickly. One of the things that My Favorite Murder has brought up frequently – I love how I know all about this show that I can't listen to. <laughs> I've read a lot of, I did a lot of research, um, that everyone has a local murder. A hometown murder. Yeah. Yes, everyone has a, a murder that was local or hometown to them. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's even true for me. Because my freshman year, a guy murdered a senior in my high school and said that he did it because when he watched A Clockwork Orange, it made him do terrible things. So he called her out of her house in the middle of the night and killed her and left her in the yard for her parents to find. Well, yeah, no, totally. It's A Clockwork Orange's fault, you motherfucker. Oh, yeah, um, totally. But I remember thinking, oh, my God, I'm never leaving my house at night. Like that that one local thing changes your behavior. I'm from Wisconsin where not only do we have serial killers. You got, you got some heavy hitter serial killers. Seriously, at least what's them. in the cheese? We need to look at the cheese. The cheese is doing something. I ate more Velveeta. This wouldn't happen. <laughs> I don't think it's the cheese. I, I honestly think to some extent – when it's this cold and gray for this much of the year, it fucks you up. I'm telling you, you ate more Velveeta, you wouldn't have this problem. I can't. <laughs> I'm so sh- One show that I really like, it's on Lifetime, is I Survived. Ooh, that's a good and one. it's not all crime-based. I mean, some of it are some of it is people who survive disasters and stuff like that. But it's it's like this empowering show because the person who survived this horrible event is telling you about it. And it again, the production value isn't that amazing. Um, because they really don't do reenactments, but they just focus on this person telling you their story. It's just, it's incredible. Um, and it's, it's also, I think, affirming because obviously these people survived or they wouldn't be on the show called I Survived. Vanity Fair Confidential is really good. Oh, that's good. It's, I think it's also on Investigation Discovery. And I mean, with Vanity Fair backing it, it's got some good production value and amazing interviews. But it runs the gamut of well-known doctor, you know, skips town and, you know, the double life he was leading to murders to just um, all sorts did of stuff. You, did you watch the one about the woman who went in for laser treatment in New York City and disappeared? No. So this woman goes to – and I'm probably getting this all wrong and I apologize. So disclaimer, do not that, – that, I'm just talking out of my ass here, but this woman goes to a like laser treatment clinic, like an aesthetic um, 
laser treatment clinic and disappears and she's never seen again. And the police focus all this stuff like on her boyfriend and was it a stranger abduction? And it turns out the guy running this like, you know, uh, this clinic didn't have a license and he'd like faked his way through all this stuff. He accidentally like killed the woman and then buried her in his backyard to cover it up. So it was like completely not what anyone thought. Holy shit. Okay, so here's the the story I was telling you about, so I'll have the facts correct. The woman's name was Maria Cruz. She was a financial analyst. She was 35 years old. She went to the cosmetology clinic of a guy named Dean Fiello um, for laser treatment. Turns out that this guy did not have uh, any kind of license to do cosmetic surgery and also had an out-of-control drug habit which is not um, a great combination. So she went to see him for something called black tongue. And during her treatment started having seizures due to a lidocaine injection he had given her. And he obviously didn't call the police because he was practicing without a license and probably while snorting cocaine. And when she died, he hid her body in his backyard. And I believe it was not found until uh, another couple bought his house. You mentioned buying a house and then, Surprise, there's a dead person in your backyard. Oh, my God. Um, If you don't have cable, BuzzFeed has started doing, like, these little shorts called BuzzFeed Unsolved. Um, You can find it on YouTube really easily. Um, They switch between, so there's BuzzFeed Unsolved Supernatural that looks at supernatural mysteries, and then BuzzFeed Unsolved um, True Crime that has true crime stories. And... The videos are usually pretty quick. They range anywhere from, I don't know, like seven minutes to about a half an hour. Um, And looking at their page, it says they have new episodes every Friday at three. Um, So if you don't have TV or cable, I think their series is pretty interesting. They had one on the Salem Witch Trials, which I really liked. If someone's into true crime or like crime but they don't like the i don't know like gory aspects of it i watched a really good documentary last night it's more like schemes and like white collar crime uh it's called betting on zero it is available on netflix for streaming and it's um how this company herbal life is essentially a a multi-level marketing slash pyramid scheme and like a Wall Street bro tries to expose them, but the main aspect is is that Herbalife targets Latino communities. And so there's this big group of mainly women trying to expose how Herbalife is a pyramid scheme, and no matter how much money you put into it, you're not going to get any money back. It was really good. It's uh, like an hour and 40 minutes or so, but I, I thought it was really good. I follow the documentaries channel on Reddit, and I was reading about this last night. One of the interesting things that the, the conversation around it emphasized was that if you have to pay to be part of a business, you're not a business owner, you're a customer. Yeah. So that if you have to participate in a business that requires you to pay to be part of it, you're not running a business, you're a customer of that business. And the later you get in, the less money you make. But that's how pyramid schemes work generally. Yeah, there's one thing that's like, if you're at the bottom, in order to make the kind of money that tell you you're going to make. Yeah, you'd have to have as many people under you that equals more than the actual population of the earth. 
<laughs> There's no possible way. Somebody did math. And that is all for this week's episode. I want to thank Amanda and Elise for hanging out with me and letting me ask them, but why do you like this over and over and over? If you are a true crime fan or you have recommendations you want to share, you can come find us on smartbitchestrashybooks.com slash podcast in the comments to this entry, or you can email me at sbjpodcast at gmail.com. Or if you're feeling like the one email is better, sarah at smartbitchestrashybooks.com also works. All goes to the same place. But if you're a big fan of true crime and you'd like to recommend or maybe explain the things that you like about it, I would love to hear from you because y'all are really interesting and have cool things to say. This episode was sponsored by Jules and James, a fiction podcast that tells the story of two strangers who fell in love with the unknown. And if you remember this from the intro, I have a sample, so stay tuned. Have you ever met a stranger and felt like you had a special connection to them, like you've known them from before? That's the inspiration behind Jules and James, a new romance fiction podcast made up of a series of conversations between two young artists, Jules and James. They start talking to each other through a misdialed phone number and decide to keep chatting indefinitely, but under certain conditions. During weekly calls, Jules and James talk about their lives in London and Paris, their dreams for the future, the world around them, and everything else that the comfort of speaking to a stranger allows you to reveal. And who knows, maybe their phone conversations might turn into something more. So if you are at all curious, the wonderful folks behind Jules and James gave me a sample to share with you. So here is a sample of the first episode of Jules and James. Why are we still talking? You're a wrong number. And you're a sign. I, I don't know. I've never actually met a sign. Here you are. <laughs> a real life sign speaking to me with this great British accent. Uh, well, it's my voice. I'm not putting it on. And you've literally changed the trajectory of my entire life. I mean, I think that's worth a, a quick chat. I think you're literally wrong. It's possible. I have a confession. I'm listening. It's absurd, but your name. What about his name? I don't know. I have to listen to the rest of the episode. If you would like to eavesdrop on more of their conversations... You can subscribe and download the episodes on iTunes, Google Play, Radio Public, and other outlets. I will have links at smartbitchestrashybooks.com slash podcast, and you can check out meetjulesandjames.com to find out more. Thank you so much to Jules and James and the team behind the show for supporting this episode. I also want to tell you about a thing, because this is super exciting for me. If you will be in or near Orlando, Florida on Saturday, July 29th, Romance Writers of America is hosting their annual Readers for Life Literacy Autographing. There will be literally, and I used it correctly, hundreds of romance authors in one place, and all of the proceeds go to literacy organizations. Over the past few years, their donations to literacy from the RWA have totaled over $1 million. So some of your favorite authors are going to be there, like Tessa Dare, Courtney Milan, Julie James, Beverly Jenkins, Jill Shalvis, and for the first time, I'm going to be signing too. I'm so excited. The signing is at the Walt Disney World Dolphin Resort in the Pacific Hall. It is Saturday, July 29th, 2017 from 3 to 5 p.m. And if you come find me, I'm in the W's. We have all the air conditioning and it's super cool. Mention the podcast and I will have a special sticker just for you if you would like one. For all of the details, you can go to rwa.org forward slash literacy. That's rwa.org slash literacy. 
Our music every week is provided by Sassy Outwater. You can find her on Twitter at Sassy Outwater. Yes, this is still Caravan Palace because this two album set makes me stupid levels of happy. This track is called Lazy Place, and I really like this one a lot. I've used it before. You can find the two album set that includes both the albums Caravan Palace and Panic at Amazon and iTunes and wherever you get your fine music. Caravan Palace is also on Facebook and on their website at caravanpalace.com. Now, I have been reading a few articles on improving your podcast and outreach with podcasts and growth, Um, and it occurred to me that all of the things that I'm supposed to ask for, you guys have already done, and I'm really honored by that. Um, As I said in the intro, the podcast has totaled over a million downloads, and I'm seriously blown away by that. So thank you so much for hanging out with me each week and for liking the show, telling a friend, leaving a review, subscribing. And having a look at our Patreon at patreon.com slash smartbitches. However you're choosing to support the show means an enormous amount to me. And I'm so glad that you're listening. And I will say this in an entry on Sunday on the site, but I always wanted to have my own radio show. And now I do. And it's really cool. So thank you so much. On behalf of Amanda and Elise and myself, we wish you the very best of reading and listening. Have a great weekend. We will see you next week.